we're going to look at uh, the value of the church tonight, and uh, I feel like I'm, I'm talking to the choir, because uh, I think each of you probably understand the value of the church, or you wouldn't be here. Uh, but we are so thankful to be here to be able to, to share with you for just a few moments, and, and we're going to be looking at the value of the church. Is the church important, and why? And the big question is, well, what is the church? <laughs> we, can't, uh, we can't say it's important, and, and we, can't, uh, uh, we can't say that uh, it's valuable because if we don't know what the church is. So that's the first thing that we need to do. Tonight we're going to look at a couple of verse, a couple of scriptures. As a matter of fact, we'll look at several scriptures. But there's two that I'm interested in. One of them is found in Ephesians in chapter 1, and you can be looking for that. And then the other one is in Matthew chapter 16. So when you get to Ephesians chapter 1, stick your finger there and then go over to Matthew and and uh, you can stick your finger there, and hopefully you use two different fingers. Uh, you can't use the same finger for both. But uh, if you have a bookmarker, you can use the bookmarkers. Uh, however you do that, you can do that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 16. We ask, you know, what is a church? Well, there's a few things that we know it's not. The church is not a building. You know, even though we have a beautiful sanctuary here and a beautiful building, we have beautiful buildings on this campus, a beautiful campus. But this is not the church, even though we have these beautiful things. And it's not a movement. You know, a lot of people think, well, that's a movement. That church is, uh, is a movement. It's not a movement. Uh, uh, although we are here to preach the gospel and we're to teach the people of how to receive Christ as their Savior and, and, uh, and, we're, and we're here to support one another, it's not, uh, it's not a movement. And the church is not a religion. You know, a lot of people say, well, yeah, sure it's a religion. It's a Christian religion. Well, uh, not all churches are Christian <laughs> So we find that the church is not a religion. And I can remember when I started my career in design back several years ago. Matter of fact, it's been many years ago. And uh, I was the youngest one in the design department. And I like to share my faith. Even then, when I was younger, I shared my faith with my coworkers and everything. And I had one man who came to me and he says, listen, he says, you're too young to be wrapped up in religion the way you are. And I said, well, I'm not wrapped up in religion. I said, I'm wrapped up in salvation. And he said, well, what's that? And I said, praise the Lord. He just opened the door. So I got to witness to him and share the gospel with him. However, he's, as far as I know, he still has never accepted Christ as his Savior. So we still have a lot to pray for. But we find that it is not, uh, it is, you know, it's not religion. It's salvation. So if you turned with me to Ephesians in chapter 1, we're going to read verses 22 and 23. And he, and here he's talking about the Father of glory, put all things under his feet, whose feet? Our Lord Jesus Christ's feet. And gave him, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, to be head over all things to the church. Hmm. Well, then the next verse tells us what the church is. 
He goes on to say, He's made Him head of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You see, now, before we get too deep, we need to understand that Christ is the head of the church. He is the head. And the church belongs to Christ. It doesn't belong to Him because we've decided to point Him ahead of the church. We didn't elect that. We didn't choose that. We were not the ones who were in charge of that. But we find that God is the one who appointed Him to be the head of the church. But we find Christ has decided to make us the body. And the body serves at the direction of the head. So, we find that our calling is to be responsive to Him. Whatever He says, we must follow. Whatever He says, we must do. I know Pastor said that this morning. He says, you know, uh, using the term from Nike, just do it. <laughs> well, I shared that in Sunday school too, or in, our, in the Sunday school in our small group this morning. I said, whatever God calls you to do, just do it. And we won't have near the trouble that we usually have in our lives. I've, I've been, uh, oftentimes I've said, no, Lord, I want to do it this way. And I found out that I made a mistake. And I made the mistake because I kind of get a whipping for that. The Lord says, I said, do this. And so I have to come back and do what he says. Now we can turn with me to Matthew in chapter 16. And we're going to read to the, some of the words of Jesus. And he and his disciples now are entered into the region of Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is some 120 miles from Jerusalem in the northern part of Palestine. And whenever Jesus and his disciples had moved in there to, or traveled to there, they recognized that there's a lot of uh, worship going on there, but it's, it's false worship. It's worship of many gods. These people were very, uh, they were very re religious, we might say, in who they preached or who they witnessed to, who they worshiped and who they shared with. We find that there was a Baal God, which was a very big one, and they all worshiped Baal. Many of them did. And uh, Baal is most commonly associated with the Canaanites and the, and the Phoenicians. And he was a god of rain and the god of the wind, god of storms, and he was produces, helped produce the fertile grounds for them to, to, to grow their, their fruits and vegetables and, and their crops. And so they worshiped him. They worshiped Baal. They worshiped a god by the name of Pan. And we find that they even had a temple that was erected there to Augustus Caesar, and you could go into the temple and worship Caesar. And we find that some of these people didn't only just worship one of these, we find that they worshiped many of these. And it's interesting, as Jesus and them come uh, to the coast or come to the area, the region there, uh, we find that Jesus standing there with his disciples, they're looking around, they can see all of these idols. Matter of fact, I think there was a mountainous wall there that had a lot of niches in it, and they had little gods and everything set up in those things that people worship. And here they were standing in front of that. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, Who do men say that the Son of God is? It says, Who do men say that I am? 
We see that in chapter 16, verse 13 through 16. It says, And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and some still others say uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And, and I felt that kind of interesting. You know, many of these people, they didn't believe in resurrection. I think Pastor mentioned that even this morning, that there was people there who didn't believe. They didn't believe in resurrection. And one whole chapter there in, in Corinthians was, was on the resurrection. But I'm just curious because they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist has already been beheaded. <laughs> he was already gone. That means that if he was John the Baptist, he's going to have to resurrect. Well, they didn't believe in that. They said, oh, some of them think he's Elijah. Elijah, he's been carried off in a big fiery chariot, and he's gone. So he must have been resurrected back too. Or maybe Jeremiah, or even one of the other prophets. It's kind of interesting how people change their thoughts and their things just to try to justify themselves, isn't it? We see a lot of that in the world today. We see that in people in our churches today who, who will say anything and everything to justify what they think and how they believe. But we find that after that, Jesus looked at his disciples, and what did he say? He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Well, we find that Jesus then turns the question not to others, but he turns it into a personal question, doesn't he? And you know, that's a personal question for each one of us here tonight. Who do you say that the Son of God is? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's worth saying again, isn't it? The most important thing that we think about when we think of God, uh, that's the most important thing about us. That reveals our faith. That reveals who we are. So it's important for us to ask that question from time to time. Who do you think the Son of, God, Son of Man is? And we need to be reminded of that. That's the reason we have communion. We're reminded of who Jesus is. That Jesus gave his life on Calvary's cross. And we are celebrating his body and his blood that he gave for us because he loved us so. And that's important. But we find in verse 16 that Simon Peter, and Simon Peter was always the one to speak up first, wasn't he? We have some of those in the church today. <laughs> well, we do. I used to have a real good friend who passed away at age 55 with a heart attack. And we were very close. And I remember the night that he was saved, he come into the church. And my thoughts was, because I always thought he was a very arrogant individual, and when he walked into the church on that Wednesday night, my first thoughts was, God, what's he doing here? <laughs> and you know, the Lord touched his heart and it brought him to an altar of prayer. And I'll tell you what, my heart melted. I went to the altar and I knelt down the side of him and I prayed with him. And I said, and I prayed for myself. I said, God, forgive me for ever thinking, what's he doing here? And for some reason, the Lord just molded our hearts together and we become the best of friends. Did so many things together. Took our youth group to the, to the beach three years in a row. And if you don't think that's something, yeah, you take, you take some teenagers to the beach. 
And, but he was my very best friend, and yet he, he died at the age of 55. He was very quick to speak. Deb used to say, he's Peter and you're John. <laughs> but you know, we had such a relationship, we could come together, we could talk about the things that were bothering us in life, and we can even talk about the events of life, and, and we can even disagree with each other and try to convince one another that we were right, and yet we would walk away hugging each other, loving each other as though nothing had ever happened. But Peter answered, and Peter said, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Wow, what a powerful confession that was. Peter may have always been quick to answer, but I tell you what, he got it right, didn't he? He got it right. So what does that reveal to us? He said, unlike any other religion, Christianity is about a vibrant personal relationship with a living God. That means it's not a religion. Although we are Christian and we're, we're called in the faith of Christianity, we find that Christianity is a personal vibrant relationship with a living God. And by believing in Christ, we are saved. And by believing in Christ, we are delivered from sin and its consequences. And folks, that's what we call salvation, isn't it? Salvation. And we come to know Christ as our Savior. In Matthew 16, 17 through 18, I'll read this from the EVS version. It says, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. He said, It's but by my Father which is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here we have the word church again. What is the church? It's the church of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Who built the church? Christ builds the church. Yeah. We witness and we testify and we share with people that we have a great church come and be a part of our church and everything. But we find that Jesus Christ is the one who's building the church, not us. Remember what I said in the first part? I said he is the head and we are the body. And we are to follow at the direction of the head. So when you're inviting and you're sharing the, your faith with others and inviting them to church, you're, it's Christ using you to invite them into the church that they might hear the gospel, that they might come to know Christ as their Savior, and that they might be saved. And then they are added into the full body of Christ. Now, a lot of times people will get this mixed up. They'll say, well, Jesus built his church on Peter. <laughs> no, whenever Jesus was talking to Peter, he, he said, and you are Peter, you are Petros, which is a little stone, a little stone. But he said, upon this rock, upon this foundation stone, upon this confession, Upon this faith, upon this belief, he said, I will build my church. It's all built on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Our believing in Christ as Savior is a big deal, folks. The church is a living organism. 
Uh, there's nothing dead about the church. Why? Because my Savior lives. He resurrected and He lives today. And if He lives, then that means I'm part of His body. And being a part of the church, being part of that body, I'm part of a living organism. A body of believers who are called Christ followers who carry out the purposes of God on this earth. That's who we are. And Jesus is our foundation. He's our foundation. Jesus is busy working with the Holy Spirit to protect and build His church. We find that God is even referred to in the Old Testament as the rock. Yeah, in Deuteronomy 32, 4, He says, He is the rock. He, his work is perfect and all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. We find that God is referred to in the rock in many places in the Old Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he said, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by men, but he was chosen of God with great honor. You see, Peter knew. Peter knew what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 16. He knew as he was standing there before all of those false gods and everything, that he was proclaiming the truth, and the truth was Christ. As he proclaimed even to those who were scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia, and those places, we find that Peter proclaimed to them, he says, he said, Christ is the living cornerstone and the foundation of the church. Peter knew what Jesus was saying in Matthew 16. The Apostle Paul knew it as well. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, and pastors already been preaching on some of this, but Paul writing, he said, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. No other foundation. Paul knew Jesus was the foundation. Christ is the head. He's the authority of the church. And we are to follow the authority. We find that Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23 said his, his body of which he is the Savior. Head of the church, the body. We are the body. What part are you? An arm? A leg? Some of you are the tongue. <laughs> I might be the little toe. <laughs> but they're all important. I tell you why. If you stump your little toe, you'll know it. Your head will know it, and your tongue will know it too. <laughs> yeah. But here's an interesting note that I find. We see Christ as referred to as the beginning and the end. We hear that He's referred to as Alpha and Omega that he's referred to as the first and the last. But here we find that he's referred to as the head and the foundation and everything in between. Everything in between. He is the first and the last. He is the foundation and the head. Christ is the builder of the church. In Acts 2, 47, says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You are not part of the church 
because of the pastoral staff. You're not part of the church because of the deacons. You're not part of the church because of anyone else. Yes, the Lord has called men to share the gospel. He's called us to be able to witness and to share with others. But it's the Holy Spirit that draws men, women, boys, and girls to Christ. We testify to people about Jesus. We share that gospel message, and it's the Holy Spirit that comes along beside us and teaches these folks that, hey, listen to what they're saying. That's the truth. You need to listen to them. And whether they accept Christ or not is not your fault. You share the gospel. Let the Holy Spirit do what He needs to do. And He will take care of that. You cannot join the church. Did you know you can't join the church? You say, well, wait a minute. We have a starting point class every so often. Don't we, don't we invite people to join the church? We invite them to join Lewis Memorial Baptist Facilities Church here and be a part of our body of believers here in the church. But to become a part of the body of Christ, the church, we don't join it. We don't join it. You must be spiritually born into it. You can't join it just because you choose to. You have to be spiritually born into it. Oh, in John chapter 3, we get a picture of that, don't we? We see that there was a man who was by the name of Nicodemus. He come to Jesus. And it's interesting if you've read that, and I know every one of you have probably, but you read that and you see this, Nicodemus comes and says, oh, we know that you're a great teacher because no one can do the things they do without being sent from God and all that. Jesus ignored everything he was saying, didn't he? Well, what did Jesus say? Jesus just said, you know, he said, I tell you the truth, said no one come to the kingdom of God unless he's born again. I can imagine Nicodemus saying, I wouldn't even say anything about that. What's he talking about? That Jesus says, you can't, you can't uh, come into the, and see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You see, Christ is the protector of the church. Christ doesn't make any bones about it, does he? He let Nicodemus believe what he wanted to, but yet he told Nicodemus, he said, you know, I'll tell you the truth. You've got to be born again. Well, that kind of blowed Nicodemus' mind, didn't it? He said, how in the world can me, an older man, how can I enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? I don't understand. Jesus ignored all that too, didn't he? And he told him how to be born again. The 18th verse of chapter 16 in Matthew says, On this rock I will build my church. He said, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So who's the protector of the church? Who protects the body? The head does. He's protecting the body. And we find that Christ's church is based on biblical truths and not on human reasoning or on human understanding. It's built on what Christ says. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says, this is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. We know that uh, the body is to teach and to preach the truth. The truth is delivered from the head. 
And when we have Christ in our lives, when the head comes into our lives and, and we become a part of the body, then we, we preach the truth to those who don't know Christ as their Savior. In John chapter 20, verse 19 and 22, he says, On that evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered together, and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said that, he showed him his hands and his side. It says the disciples were overjoyed. Folks, they weren't sad anymore, were they? You know, they were behind those locked doors in fear of the Jews that they might come and take them and crucify them as well or throw them in prison, do something to them. And yet they were, they were afraid. And whenever Jesus showed them his hands and his side, they didn't say, oh, well, it's Jesus. No, it says they were overjoyed. Hey, it's the Lord. <laughs> and they rejoiced. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. But then he also told them, he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Uh-oh. Now we find that the authority is telling us that we're going to be doing something, right? Yeah. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Here we see their salvation experience, don't we? We see their salvation experience. They believed and they received the Holy Spirit into their lives. Praise the Lord for that. Just as you have sent me into the world, he's telling God that. So just as you have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And Jesus told his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you as well. Jesus wanted to please the Father and not himself. And he desires that we please him and not ourselves. That we are to follow the authority. Jesus wants us to stay on mission, share the gospel to everyone, obey the great commission. And we need to know what that great commission is. Continue to be like Jesus and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, you can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, He's our role model. And we find that all through His ministry, the Holy Spirit was always with Him. He could do not, couldn't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit. And we could never have, He could never have fulfilled God's plan for salvation for us without the Holy Spirit. And folks, I'm here to give you the good news that you nor I, either one, can do anything, accomplish anything apart from the Holy Spirit in our lives. The church is valuable. It's valuable because it's Christ followers who are growing together. Are you growing together? Pray that you are. Pastor prayed for that right here this evening whenever he talked about the communion and that we are a body that was are to, are to love one another and be together. We're growing together to be more like Jesus and continuing the ministry that Jesus has left for us to do. Was this the disciples? This was the disciples' salvation point right here. That was their experience. And then we find Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit and they live in them and he lives in them forever. He lives in us forever. If you know Christ, the Holy Spirit has come into your heart and life. He comes in whenever you say yes to Jesus. But then we find also on one occasion in Acts chapter 1 that it, while they were eating together, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised 
which you have heard me speak about, where he said, John baptized with water, but he said, in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now we find that if he's already breathed on them the Holy Spirit, why are they being baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, they're being immersed in the Holy Spirit. They're being immersed in him. We need to be immersed. Yes, when we come to know Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and our lives to live, but we need to be immersed in the Holy Spirit to allow Him to have full first place in our lives to direct us. Why do we see so many Christians stumbling along the way? They're not immersed. And we need to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. We must believe and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, secondly, we, we must become disciples, and then we got to go make disciples. You see, we can't, we can't make disciples if we're not a disciple. We have to make disciples after we become a disciple of Christ. He tells us in Matthew 28, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything which I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You want Christ to be with you always to the very end of the age? Then obey the head. Obey the head. Go and make disciples of all nations. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Follow him. We find it in 2 Samuel, and I love this, and that's the reason I threw this in, because it talks about the Lord is my rock. It says, the Lord is my rock, he's my fortress, he's my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me in my place of safety. He is my refuge, he's my savior, and one who saves me from violence. And he's everything, everything to me. Is he everything to you? To all who believe in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. There is nothing better than being a part of his church and following Christ as our Savior. Why is the church valuable? It's valuable because it connects us with God. It connects us with God. It helps us to find deeper meaning. Our individual church here helps us to find meaning, meaning in our lives. It allows us to feel at peace. Do you feel at peace tonight? I pray you do. If you don't, you can talk to some of us afterwards. We can pray with you. And we find that it strengthens us spiritually. We need to be uh, strengthened spiritually. And it fosters a sense of community. We are a community. We're a family. We're to love one another, even as Christ loved us. And we should love the way that Christ loves. What is the value of the church? <laughs> well, it's those who believe and are born again, marching forward with a banner of the truth, which is the gospel, the body the body of Christ. That's the church. I pray that each one of us are part of the body tonight and that we can fellowship, share our lives together, work together in sharing the ministry with people, 
sharing the gospel, and letting people know that Jesus saves. Jesus saves.